Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Royal College of Surgeons. My name is Sam. I work here. Um, I work in the museums, and I'm a big fan of Arthur Keith, and the Piltdown Affair therefore has a particular... Um, did I just stand on that? <laughs> you carry on, I'll, you carry on and I'll have a fiddle. It, it may just have time. The Piltdown Affair is uh, of particular interest because it may well be a blot, the only blot on the escutcheon of the college. Um, and I'm delighted to welcome uh, Professor Dean to talk about this uh, this afternoon. Uh, Professor Dean is Professor of Anatomy at uh, UCL. He's trained in dental surgery and has a background in human biology and comparative anatomy. He's well known, among other things, for his uh, best-selling textbooks. Um, and he's a renowned expert on human evolution. Uh, crucially for us, he's at the heart of the nexus that is the Natural History Museum, UCL, and the Royal College of Surgeons. And we're very keen on this uh, collaboration. So it's a delight to welcome him here to tell us about the alarming title from terms of college reputation, The Hoax and the Hunterian. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you, Sam. So there is a plan to my talk. I'm going to set the scene. I then I'm going to spend 10, 15 minutes talking about the key players in this story. Then we'll go on and tell the story and briefly say how it was exposed. And if we have time at the end, uh, say a little bit about some new findings which come from joint work with colleagues at Natural History Museum and other places uh, which you might find interesting because I think they tell us something not about who did it but perhaps how they did it. So how many people live in Sussex? Well, if you drive from uh, Uckfield uh, towards Haywards Heath, you very quickly in a mile or so come to a sign which says Piltdown Golf Course and Arthur Conan Doyle used to play golf there, and he's going to be part of our story. And there's not much to see on the main road, save a pub, which has changed its name, and an antique shop. If you go past a big gravel pit, a pond, keep going down, you come to the gates of uh, a manor house, Barkham Manor. It's private, so don't try and go there. And along this long drive, if you look um, to the very end, you see the manor at the end, there is a ditch on either side. And exactly 75 years ago today, which is why we're here talking about this today, uh, Arthur Keith was asked to unveil this monolith, this, uh, this big stone uh, slab. Uh, and Arthur Smith Woodward from the uh, Natural History Museum gave a speech, as did Arthur Keith, commemorating the finds... Uh, from the ditch on the side of this road, uh, which were basically underneath um, where this monolith is positioned. So it says on this, here in the old gravel, Mr Charles Dawson, fellow of the Society of Antiquaries, found the fossil skull of Piltdown Man between 1912 and 1913. And on the bottom here it goes on to say that uh, Arthur Smith Woodward and Charles Dawson described this for the first time at the Geological Society in uh, December 1912. So before we begin, uh, let's just think. We know this was a, a fake. We know this was a hoax, a joke. What? What's the difference between a joke and a hoax and a forgery? So this, uh, I have to be careful here. I see people in the audience who I know believe in mermaids and mermen. Uh, this is... Uh, made up of bits of dog, bits of chicken, bits of fish, and it's supposed to be a mermaid. Uh, is it a joke? Well, imagine you did this and you put it on the desk of your boss, uh, who would be an eminent anatomist, zoologist, thinking he might buy you lunch, because uh, it was funny, but he took it seriously. And he, um, he invited the press, who... who um, who then came and wrote it up. Let's just get that right. It'll come right in a minute. Who then came and wrote it up. And 
it went further and the international press got hold of it and then uh, there was a big international fuss that something very special and new had been found. At what point do you declare that you had a joke, you had, you had carried out a joke? If you didn't do it in the first hour or two, you probably lose your job. And even the people who worked with you who knew you'd done it wouldn't dare say anything at that point. It'd become too big uh, because they um, wouldn't have real proof that you did it and the best thing to do would be to keep quiet. So that's one idea that people have had about how this whole business of Piltdown got out of control. Here are some more jokes, hoaxes, uh, forgeries. Let's see what you think. This was a flint nodule and the workmen who found it supposedly thought it was a bit too light. And so they cracked it open and inside was a toad. And here is a little statuette. It's from Beauport Park. It was found in a Roman slag heap. It is cast iron and it was purported to be the first example of iron cast in Roman times. The, the Romans did not have the technology to heat iron ore to temperatures that would melt it, but they could forge it. And this was held to be an example uh, showing that they were actually capable of, uh, of casting iron. Is that uh, a joke? Is it a hoax? Is it a forgery? And here's some roof tiles, some bricks from Pevensey Castle. And on them are stamped, uh, not very clearly, but it, it suggests uh, it, it, it has enough meaning for experts to have uh, thought that it dated them to about 406, 409 AD, which is the time when the last Roman uh, governor of England abandoned Britannica. And these then gave context to Pevensey Castle. Um, would you think that was a joke or a forgery? So these are things to ponder as we talk. So today is very much uh, an anniversary uh, of the unveiling of the, of the monolith to Piltdown, but it's also a day where we're going to dwell more on Arthur Keith because of his association with this museum and this college. So I'm going to spend more time talking about Arthur Keith and then very briefly tell you about other key characters who were involved in this story. So here he is. Uh, he was, his parents were tenant farmers on the outskirts of Aberdeen. He was in the middle of a family of, of ten brothers and sisters. He uh, was 11 years younger than his oldest brother and 11 years older than his youngest brother. But he outlived them all but one. He did his time on the farm. Uh, he talks about cutting neeps in the frost and, and ploughing. And he then became restless and followed his brother to Aberdeen University to do first classics, which you had to, and then on to do medicine. He then uh, worked briefly as uh, a house officer, I suppose, in the Murray Asylum in Perth, and then, even more briefly, he actually he, he probably got the sack from the Murray Asylum for being honest. He signed a death certificate which declared the patient had committed suicide, and that broke the record of there never having been a suicide there, and he, for one reason or another, was asked to leave. So then he became a GP briefly in Mansfield, not for very long, and saw an advert to become a plant collector and a surgeon for a mining company in uh, Thailand, about 120 miles south of Bangkok. But he was familiar with the whole Malay Peninsula, and he spent three years there um, treating, uh, obviously, minors and, and anyone who he could be a medical help to. But he became curious as to why people had such terrible uh, bouts of malaria and wondered whether the primates, the monkeys and the gibbons, also got malaria. So while there, over those three years, he made about 50 meticulous dissections all with notes and drawings of these primates, and decided that this was really where his career belonged. And he developed a lifelong passion for primate comparative anatomy. He used those notes as the basis for his master's degree later on the ligamentous system of primates, 
and also for his, his MD in, uh, on the comparative myology uh, of, the, of the muscles of primates. And that was really never published, and the manuscript is here, just through there in the library, uh, and still offers a wealth of information. So realising that that career couldn't go on forever, he, he decided he'd be an anatomist, which in those days required that you sit the fellowship examinations in surgery. So he came back to London, where his sister, a nurse, was staying, so he had family around, and he studied at University College with George Dancer Thane, who was a very uh, senior anatomist at the time, but Keith thought his lectures were terminally boring. They were just uh, illustrative, um, descriptive anatomy with no, uh, with no um, real functional implications or surgical implications at all. And he used to get told off for not attending. Uh, while he was at UCL, he made his... Uh, uh, he, he eked a living also writing popular summaries for magazines of scientific papers. And it was this one particularly, uh, the discovery of Java Man by Eugène Dubois in 1891 of Homo erectus, that really convinced Keith that he, he, his primary interest was to say something about human evolution and uh, to devote his career uh, in the way Dubois had done to contributing uh, to this field. So... There came a time when he finished his primary. Uh, it seems to me they did the surgical exams by doing no practical surgery at all. It was all by examination. There's no evidence that he was ever in theatre learning things. Um, he must have been able to do the basics. But no job was in sight, and so he went to Germany, and he worked briefly with Wilhelm Hiss in Leipzig. Hiss... Um, probably is most interesting because of uh, things we'll talk about to do with the heart in a minute. But also he was the guy who um, identified the skeleton of Johann Sebastian Bach and was responsible for the beautiful bronze statue outside, the lifelike statue. So Hiss asked Keith what he wanted to know, that dreaded question that all PhD students get asked, and he didn't really know what to say. He was unable to say, I want to study human evolution, and Hiss was bored with him and uh, they didn't really get on. So then an opportunity came for a job at the London Hospital. And while you watch this, listen to the story. Keith um, felt very strongly about the teaching of anatomy and why it should be functional and relevant to medical students. He swung the job um, by the skin of his teeth, um, Frederick Treves was the dean at the London and didn't like the idea of an anatomist uh, being in charge of anatomy. He thought it should be a surgeon. And uh, somebody whispered in his ear, Thane actually, George answer Thane, whispered in his ear, but actually he's Scottish. And so that changed everything and Treves swung him the job. And uh, while there with his students, he did a lot of experimental work. Uh, he would go to the x-ray department and shine x-rays or transilluminate himself and his students to look at the mechanisms of breathing, to work out how the diaphragm contracted and drew down the heart. And in some uh, um, individuals, himself included, he classified them as abdominal breathers. The, abdomen, uh, the wall of the abdomen um, sprung out when you breathe deeply and recoiled back like a visceral piston. In others, in his favourite student's uh, case, uh, Frederick Wood-Jones, he was a complete chest breather, and the diaphragm, of course, contracted, but tended to draw his ribs up rather than uh, um, be accompanied by expansion of his diaphragm. So uh, I'm curious about this photograph, because this is Frederick Wood-Jones, and I'm sure that this is he at the London Hospital holding Keith High, probably at graduation, um, of the, this group of students. Another thing Keith did at this time was to work out why when the collecting chambers of the heart, the oracle, the atria contract, they don't pump blood back into the venous system up the superior and inferior vena cava. And he worked out that the muscular sling around the entrance to the atria acted as a, a sphincter. And... Another thing, uh, there are a few slides here I accept are super slides. They're not, I'm not going to take you through them, but some of you here know too much detail, and this is for you. But 
Uh, one really important thing people were trying to understand was how the heart beats, where the uh, impulses began and how they were conducted through the heart tissues. And very early on, Jan Pekinji, at the, at the advent of uh, having good microscopes, identified what he thought were connective tissue strands running through the ventricles. Then other people made contributions to this, particularly uh, Tawara and Ashoff. Uh, Keith didn't believe what um, particularly Hiss had described as a little bundle of tissue here. I think he had a thing about Hiss. Uh, but it was only when you read these descriptions that he conceded and, and retracted the proofs of a paper and uh, agreed he could find these. But with another student of his, Martin Flack, he had been looking at the histology of the heart and he identified a region high up by the superior vena cava which he became convinced was the pacemaker of the heart, which was the origin of the impulses which spread through the heart. And Keith always involved his students. He always published with them. And at this time, everything he did had some practical medical value as well. Uh, it was Thomas Lewis, Tommy Lewis, who took the real prize and showed with ECG uh, that this little node here at the top, the node of Keith and Flack, was where impulses from the heart originated. And um, that was a major breakthrough in medical science, which Keith had some small part to play in. So Keith was then appointed here uh, to the Royal College of Surgeons as Hunterian uh, professor and, and, and uh, curator of the great Hunterian Museum out here. And that, in a way, liberated him from some of the medical duties of teaching uh, only medical students, but he was still dedicated to science and surgery. But he was able to pursue his interest in, in human evolution a bit more. And these fossils found quite a long time ago, in 1888, um, in private hands, came to Keith, who described them, and he pored over these bones. Uh, he could find nothing about them that wasn't modern. And, and yet, in the next picture, I hope, um, this is another picture with a bit too much information, but we've got to do a bit of geology, uh, those Galley Hill bones were found high up, 100 feet above the present level of the Thames. And if you think, uh, Prestwich and others had described the sedimentary deposition of rocks from seabeds and from previous river systems over time, but then made the important point that more modern rivers cut down through them so that present time was at the bottom where the river was, but previous terraces were higher up in, in past time. Keith, because the Galley Hill... Um, remains were buried 100 feet high, uh, was convinced, as others were, that they were very, very old and yet very, very modern. And they were associated with some kind of flint tools, which is another important part of our story. Uh, so Keith was convinced at this time that modern humans with a modern brain size and, and modern in all aspects of their walking and their anatomy was a very ancient thing. So it set the scene for his future thinking. So Arthur Smith Woodward, uh, I'm not going to spend so much time on, but was another remarkable man. He left school, went to college in Manchester, but before he got a degree at 18, he sat for uh, exams, civil service exams, which won him a place as an assistant at, in the geological department uh, uh, at, the, at the British Museum Natural History. And we know that the other 13 candidates all had degrees, and we know he took 10 papers. He could have scored 2,900 2, marks, but he got 2,002. Uh, he was 200 ahead of all the other candidates, and he got the job. He was incredibly sharp, bright, hardworking. He was... Um, a very, uh, very renowned vertebrate paleontologist, morphologist, particularly uh, his work on fossil fish um, uh, shone through. But in no sense should he be regarded as not knowing his human anatomy. He could have held his own with anybody. So Arthur Smith Woodward um, rose to become keeper, head of department of geology uh, at the Natural History Museum as it is today, and he's one of the key players in today's story. 
Now, this is one of my super slides. You're not uh, meant to do any more than just know that on one side we have the English, on the other side we have the French. There were schools of thought in both England and France. Uh, all of them believed that there were paleoliths, old stone tools, but some of them, not all of them, believed there were very, very old stone tools. And what's very, very old? Well, some of them would have pushed it in modern thinking to a million years. And so the bottom two here, um, a couple of these people would have been convinced had been either used by early man and therefore were evidence early man was around at a very ancient time. Others of them thought and actually demonstrated you could put flints into a concrete mixer and they'd come out looking like this. Uh, you should know that Arthur Smith Woodward felt very strongly that these so-called dawn tools or earliths uh, were real. So both he and Arthur Keith uh, had a belief for different reasons in the great antiquity of, of uh, modern humans. Charles Dawson is another interesting character. He, like his father, became a solicitor. Uh, he, his family moved from the north of England to Hastings. He was the eldest of three brothers. He was incredibly sharp, and he set up uh, a practice. If you go to Uckfield, this is Uckfield High Street, look down the high street, and then turn to the right, you still see Dawson and Hart, the solicitor's company that uh, he established, the land agents. And he was renowned, I suppose, for well, sort of a bit of wheeler dealing. Today it would be considered normal, but he swung himself this house just by the castle in Lewis, um, acting, uh, his um, clients thought, for them, uh, for, the hast for the museum in Lewis, but actually discovered he'd actually bought it for himself. So he was a little bit unpopular with people for different reasons. But he was remarkably sharp. Uh, Miles Russell in his book lists all these things that Charles Dawson lectured on and wrote papers on. This is extraordinary. I'm not going to read them out, but there's virtually nothing he didn't know about from aerodynamics to natural gas to ceramics, uh, iron working in Sussex, um, paleontology, whatever. Even as a child, as a teenager, he'd been scouring the countryside with experts, with mentors, who'd taught him an awful lot of geology and paleontology, and he was very, very good at it, very clever. For all his discoveries, he was elected Fellow of, of the Geological Society in 1888 and elected Fellow of the Society of Antiquaries in 1895. Uh, and he was good mates with uh, Smith Woodward. He was good mates with Smith, with Smith Woodward because he would take all his fossil finds and, and, and uh, give them to the Geological Department at the Natural History Museum. Joe Viner, who's one of the people who cracked the Piltdown uh, forgery, uh, said that Charles Dawson had in his possession a cast of this mandible, which was discovered in 1907. He'd certainly studied a cast. So this mandible, found near Heidelberg in Germany, was a real find at the time. Uh, in 1907, this was very, very ancient evidence for uh, humans a long time ago. It's a very robust mandible, it's very complete, very thick-boned, and um, we'll say more about the parallels with this and finds from Piltdown later on. So there's one more person we should mention. Uh, we could speak for an hour about him, Grafton Elliot Smith, but we won't. He was an Australian medic, a very talented musician, bass baritone. His father was a famous school teacher. He studied anatomy under um, J.T. Wilson in Sydney and became a neuroanatomist, a comparative neuroanatomist, un uh, unparalleled in his cleverness, I think. And if we look at uh, what uh, two people said about him, this is Alec Cave, um, who said he was marked by the simplicity of greatness and by innate modesty. Uh, Solly Zuckerman, who didn't often say much good about anyone, uh, said here, Elliot Smith was always a vigorous crusader for his own views and he never shrank from controversy. He undoubtedly helped create the intellectual climate of his day both within and outside his subject to an extent which I believe no anatomist this century has done. So he was really very well respected, particularly as a neuroanatomist, but also 
a fine anatomist too. So, here we start the story. Here's the ditch at Piltdown. Here they all are digging. And Charles Dawson said one night when he was at Barkham Manor, he had a stroll between a meeting, which took place every four years. He was steward of the manor. And before dinner, he wandered down the, the path, not very far, I have to say, and saw gravel, which he thought was very ancient uh, uh, and, and of, of great interest. And then workmen, it's not quite clear why they were there just before dinner, had been digging there, and he asked them if they'd found any fossils there. They said no. He said, look out for some. And on a future occasion, again, we're not sure when, it could be any time between 1908 and 1912, they had found what they thought was a coconut, but it's too big to, to preserve it all, so they smashed it up and kept a bit in a waistcoat pocket for when Dawson returned, put the rest in heaps on the side. Dawson, having been shown this at some unknown date, then said, ha-ha, this ain't no coconut, it's the vault bone, the bone that surrounds the brain case uh, of uh, presumably an ancient human, and it's stained so darkly in the gravels it must be very old, and started grabbing around and found other pieces around by the monument here. He then uh, informed, he actually showed it slickly and slyly to other people, uh, a trainee Jesuit priest from Hastings who was a friend, Father Teilhard de Chardin, he showed it to other people, but then eventually, presumably having got confidence they, uh, they took it seriously, wrote to his friend Smith Woodward, told him about this, and they both waited till summer when they had time, and in June uh, they started digging again, once with Taya de Chardin, found a bit of um, elephant tooth and a bit of hippo tooth, and on an astonishing occasion Dawson put his pick into the gravel and the mandible flew out with two teeth in it, a hemi-mandible, with the jaw joint clipped off, lost, and the chin snapped off, lost. But two fine teeth, which were worn very, very flat, which was what people thought was the way human teeth wore and not the way people thought great ape teeth wore. So they had enough at this point to start putting it all together. So quietly, in uh, August, September, they started gluing it all together and... At this time, Arthur Keith was in Scotland, and so actually was Elliot Smith. They were at a meeting in Dundee. Then Arthur Keith went on holiday to see his family. When he came back, he heard rumours about this and got to see these fossils before they were described in December at the Geological Society meeting. And he was unhappy with the way they glued the bits together, but astonished at what they'd found. Now, at the meeting, Elliot Smith turned up, I think... Um, at the last minute and gave a 10-minute talk saying that the cast made from these bones, which showed what the brain might have looked like, was very flat, quite small, showed some evidence of being asymmetrical. Therefore, he made the suggestion that it was possible this individual may have had speech. And he also pointed to some other things which are very primitive, um, not so human-like. Arthur Keith was largely celebratory about the fines at this meeting, um, but think of Galley Hill again. He pushed for it being very, very old. He said, I think it's older than you think, 200, 500,000 years. Why not a million? Uh, and this made a lot of people swallow, but uh, he, he wanted to emphasise its age rather than the anatomy he thought wasn't quite right. The bone is extraordinarily thick. These vault bones are very thick. Uh, it's not unusual in archaeological finds, and there were some around Hastings, equally thick. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean, and they didn't think these were pathological. They thought they were normal bones, but thick, like the Heidelberg jaw. And that, of course, with their staining, uh, gave them more evidence that this was ancient and old. Now, one person at that meeting uh, probably got it dead right. David Waterston was an anatomist at King's. It's ten minutes' walk from here. He was an Edinburgh an, uh, graduate in medicine. He was a comparative anatomist like Keith. He worked on penguins and cetaceans because of the British involvement in Antarctica at that time. He was also an archaeologist. 
Uh, he stood up boldly at the meeting and said, look, the brain case was human in practically all its essential characters, while the jaw resembled in all its details the mandible of a chimp. doesn't make sense. And it seems to me to be as inconsequent to refer to the mandible and the cranium to be the same individual as it would be to articulate a chimpanzee foot with the bones of an essentially human thigh and leg. In other words, he was saying the jaw joint is missing, but the slot the fossa which it fits into on the temporal bone of the skull is there and there's no way an ape-like jaw with an ape-like jaw joint, club-like and bulbous, would have fitted into that. Therefore, he was unconvinced it was from the same individual and uh, in fact, more than half the people at the meeting were unconvinced. But everybody else was swayed along by this huge discovery that we had... Uh, in this country, evidence, uh, very early evidence for human evolution. So life in London in anatomy schools went on as normal, but one thing happened in May, which it's important to know happened now, uh, not meant to be read. Arthur Keith was elected Fellow of the Royal Society in May. This is before he'd written a thing about Piltdown, he'd made a few comments, but this is the certificate which says you know, he, he's a candidate and has been elected to the Royal Society. I just want to show you how many people supported him. 13 or 14 people, of which there are five or six, Smith, Woodward, Elliot Smith, Symington. Many, many people uh, supported Keith who were involved in Piltdown and who had disagreements uh, amongst the group who studied Piltdown. But there was no question uh, that he was worthy of it. And if you read why he was elected FRS, it was because of his work on the heart, his work on breathing, his work on comparative primate anatomy, uh, not much mention of Galley Hill. It's wrong for people to suppose that this accolade uh, happened for Keith because of his, um, his work, his later work on, on um, fossil humans. Um, then Keith in May also got copies of casts of Piltdown Man. They came to his desk, plaster casts, and he really set about working on it. I want to read you this letter. You can't possibly see it here. Uh, it's, in fact, I'm, I'm looking for the letter so that I can read it to you. Otherwise, I have to read it from the screen. But it's a letter to, to Thane. I'm going to have to read it. It says, uh, please come and look at how I put the Piltdown bones together, which I know are now in the correct position. I want you to confirm this. Uh, you must come today because I'm going to Lord's tomorrow. He was also an Arsenal supporter. He lived in Highbury in his house now on... Uh, Lee Road would overlook the Emirates Stadium, but he, he had his priorities right, at least. But he'd stuck this together, and the brain now, he's convinced, is 1,500 cc's. Uh, you must come and, and look at this. He respected Thane hugely as an anatomist, and he wanted some reassurance. Thane came. Then he asked Elliot Smith to come. Elliot Smith took some things on board, wasn't happy. Then he asked Smith Woodward to come. This was his way. This is the kind of thing he did. He got everyone to come and try and reassure them what he was doing was correct. Now, by this time, two camps had been set up. There's the group over here um, at the Natural History Museum in the Geology Department, as it was, Arthur Smith Woodward, Pycroft, an osteologist, and a dentist, Arthur Swain Underwood from King's. Uh, Keith had a dentist, too, James Liam Williams, an American working in Hampstead, and Thane was on his side, we think, as well. So at this meeting, uh, International Congress of Medicine in August, it had reached a head. No longer were people arguing about whether this was one or two individuals, they were now arguing about how it was put together. Here was the original reconstruction from the Woodward camp. Here's what Arthur Keith did to it with Liam Williams. He'd made it look like Galley Hill. They put a mandible on with human, small human teeth with a, almost a chin. They'd hiked the vault bones up here so there was at least an extra inch uh, in height and they'd moved the bones apart so the midline was now split and separated to make it quite capacious. And so without making too much of a fuss about this, uh, the morning session, Woodward presented his case. The afternoon session, Keith presented his case rather cynically and forcefully upset a lot of people and a row uh, 
um, was forthcoming. It had major implications for Elliot Smith because he described this brain, and look at the endocast now, widened up much bigger. It, it almost changed his story to become less asymmetrical. Uh, it, it, it was very embarrassing for Elliot Smith, who then thought he'd better step in and sort it out. So he, he appealed to his mentor, uh, J.T. Wilson, who uh, was about to be appointed anatomist in Cambridge, and he talked very carefully and closely with him. And here, Elliot Smith's brilliance really does come out. He, uh, he identified a midline, which the others had not satisfactorily done, and he uh, put them together uh, with the floor, if you know what this means, the anterior cranial fossa horizontal, and came up with a much more reasonable um, reconstruction. In other words, when he did pay attention, he just cut straight through the rubbish and put it right. However, that was only about the vault. What about the mandible? The, Keith went on and on and on all through his career, refining uh, his, his reconstructions of this, largely to prove to people that reconstructing skulls was a science and that it should be done by people who were um, comparative anatomists. Then, in August, Tayo de Chardin, the Jesuit priest, was back, this is 1913, and they asked him for a day's dig at Piltdown. And lo and behold, imagine there was a lot of worry about whether the chin was like an ape or whether it was like a human. And of course, if it bore a fang-like ape canine or eye tooth, that would clinch it to be ape-like. If it bore a small human canine, reduced in size, it would support Keith's reconstruction. To Keith's real distress, Tyre de Chardin was told, look over there in that pile, and within a minute, he came up with this canine tooth, and it was ape-like, and it clearly seemed to fit with the jaw. So they were jubilant. The Woodward group were jubilant. Keith was in a real mess. He was really uh, worried by this. He, he said the colour's not right, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't match the missing third molar, which he thought was unerupted, which is actually untrue, and he said the wear on the tooth doesn't match the, the apparently juvenile nature of the tooth. Uh, he was so close to seeing some key facts, but he was really more concerned with maintaining his, his own story. In fact, just a quick look at the canine as it is. You'll see later it was stuffed with little pebbles. The end is snapped off, and the width of the nerve chamber inside is actually m more, m more compatible with uh, an ape which is not fully adult. But the wear is equivalent to a very, very old animal. And so the young anatomy of the tooth doesn't match the ancient old wear and tear on the tooth. Um, this was pointed out by many people, uh, but uh, they didn't want to hear. So Keith then uh, started to do what he was very good at, and appealed to the press. So Alec, uh, Alex Cave wrote, he had a lifelong, assiduously cultivated connection with the lay press. It was this flair for the popular exposition and speech and writing of scientific matters which did much in later years to establish his natural, national reputation. This is really interesting. This is a letter from the editor of the Morning Post to Thane. Keith had been on the phone to him, trying to get Thane to go public and support him. Uh, he didn't, he just kept quiet. But Gordon Knox, the editor of the Morning Post, was really intimate friends with Arthur Conan Doyle. And he had lured Keith, into, at, at a later point, into a debate in the newspaper, his newspaper about spiritualism and seances, which uh, Conan Doyle felt very strongly were, uh, were true, uh, and Keith, with his opposite views, uh, and he'd actually engineered uh, a kind of debate in the press. But Keith went along with this kind of thing. He, he, he always appealed uh, to the public and to, to, you know, to popular thinking to get himself out of a sticky mess. Um, if you look at the eye teeth of the canine teeth of apes, the upper tooth fits between two lower tooth like a slot. And the upper tooth is worn so that it has a blade-like facet on the front and the back. 
But there's only one ape in London, I guess, that is different. And it's here in the Royal College of Surgeons. And this was identified by Caroline Grigson as uh, an animal that Dawson had come and looked at and drawn and was perhaps what was in everyone's mind when they were interpreting the Piltdown canine. So Arthur Keith writes, and we don't know the chronology here, I'm giving it you as it happened. Uh, Arthur Keith writes, I found by going over our college museum specimens, especially dentitions of female gorillas, wrong. There was only one female gorilla, and it was only, uh, not all great apes. It was not occasionally, it was only that lower canine. That um, Canines that are seen with one facet, which is worn by the upper tooth, the lateral incisor, corresponding to the kind of wear on the Piltdown tooth. So Keith was searching for an explanation as to why the canine of Piltdown looked the way it did. So this specimen in the museum has no back teeth at the bottom. It's lost them through periodontal disease, so it chewed a lot more on its front teeth. And the front teeth are worn smooth, like glass, and very worn. But if you look into the mouth of this beast, you see some wax stuck between the teeth here, still there, which Dawson left behind when he took moulds of that uh, individual. And I want you to have a look at the Piltdown canine and compare it with the upper canine of that gorilla. It's got a bit lopped off the top. It's got a tiny bit of pulp exposed here. There are mirror images of each other. It's as if this was modelled on that, although I, you know, I have no basis for knowing that's the, the, the case. So had Dawson actually been to the museum before he told Keith about this individual? And did Keith then seize upon this as something he had found? Well, here are Dawson's drawings from later in the year, but Keith's diary says he was actually in the museum in January, February, but maybe for other purposes. So we don't know what really happened, and if this had been covered up, why would we? It would have been well covered up. But I think it's highly likely that this individual was used as a template for constructing uh, an eye tooth of the Piltdown, uh, to match the Piltdown mandible. It's drawn here deliberately foreshortened, uh, uh, not as it actually is, and... In, uh, and the left and right are confused, they're mixed up, but even dental students do that. So here was the construction as it is now. This extraordinary crossbite at the front to accommodate a tooth which clearly had been altered, which nobody wanted to face. A missing jaw joint, but nevertheless, the face and jaw of an ape and the skull of something that it's like humans. Then there was a meeting at the Royal Society where finally... Elliot Smith was going to tell everybody um, what, uh, what he considered um, his interpretation of the brain was and of the reconstruction of the skull. Interesting to, uh, again, read what Solly Zuckerman said about this. He says, and there was Arthur Keith, whose scientific qualities I usually felt were in inverse proportion to his widespread influence and charm. But remember... John Maddox, the editor of Nature, wrote of Solly Zuckerman in his obituary, he was capable of labyrinthine deviousness. And Keith had other reasons, uh, sorry, Zuckerman had other reasons not to think favourably of Keith. He had an outstanding ability to charm non-specialist audiences. He was immensely friendly and the door of his conservator's room on the ground floor of the Royal College of Surgeons was always open. So Keith of himself wrote of that Royal Society meeting, they looked on me as a brawler and continued to frown on me for my outspoken criticism. He felt he'd been rude and outspoken, and, and indeed, he, uh, everyone had said what they thought. So Zuckerman goes on, Arthur Keith, having failed to persuade his anatomical and zoological colleagues the Piltdown skull was wrongly reconstructed, carried the dispute into the open, finally attacking Elliot Smith at the Royal Society. I can't visualise Keith as a brawler. Well, if he says that, he's probably right. In person, he was altogether too mild and kind, but equally, as I've said, I was never able to regard him as more than a superficial scientist. Whatever his influence on the anatomical world at the time, he was always one for sweeping generalisations. And then, at Piltdown, 
this most extraordinary thing came uh, out from under a hedge. It was thought to be made of bone from a very big animal, perhaps an elephant or um, mammoth thigh bone. But what would anyone use it for? Digging tubers, a thing the size of... It was called a cricket bat. Or spearing elephants from beneath. It, it, It just didn't make sense. And here we have to think, was the forger actually really not very good and made a stupid, silly error? Or was someone else now saying, look, the joke's up. Uh, we, can all, uh, we can all have a, a laugh, and this is a, a warning that we're on to you. I don't know what I favour, but certainly this is very difficult to explain. But everyone uh, took it more seriously than they should have. And then, almost immediately, William King Gregory, who'd been visiting uh, earlier, he'd been at a party with everyone to celebrate the, the mandible uh, and, and knew about the canine, wrote this. It's been suspected by some that they're not old at all, the, the bones at Piltdown, that they may even represent a deliberate hoax, a Negro or Australian skull, and an ape jaw artificially fossilised and planted in the gravel to fool scientists. Well, you know, that, that was true. He must have... Uh, people don't, just don't think that. It had been gossip for a long time that that was the case. Uh, but nobody would have said it in the open. But uh, astonishing that that was published. And indeed, this is another super slide not meant to do any more than just show you the faces of all the people, anatomists, zoologists, uh, paleontologists, uh, worldwide, Europe-wide, who had expressed doubts that those bones belonged to one individual. I don't think any of them went as far as saying it was fraudulent or a forgery. Uh, It may have been on their mind, but you didn't say that kind of thing without evidence. Uh, It would put you in a tight legal spot. But they all had their doubts. And then Dawson died. He probably, he said to someone at the station, his doctor in London had said he had too many uh, white blood cells. It's possible he died of a chronic leukaemia. But after his death, uh, in his house, his widow uh, gave to Smith Woodward finds that he said he'd made Sheffield Park, a couple of miles away from Piltdown. Another tooth, just like the Piltdown uh, molar in the mandible, two pieces of brain case again, and it shut everyone up. Uh, finally, Woodward published these a couple of years later, after, uh, in 1917. He, he must have been desperate to just quieten things. And no one could contest that if you had a second animal that looked so similar from another site, uh, that, that this wasn't looking more likely. So the next slide is a super slide. We're nearly at the end. But how was this exposed? Well, Kenneth Oakley had had doubts about Piltdown uh, at the Natural History Museum. Joe Viner and Wilfred Legros-Clark were anatomists in Oxford. And after a meeting at a party, Joe Viner drove home one night, puzzled, hearing for the first time from Oakley that nobody really knew where the Piltdown two fossils came from. And he also wrestled with the idea that the flat-worn teeth were set at an angle to each other. One was tilted outwards, the other was tilted inwards. How could an animal chew with asymmetrical teeth like that? They would trip up over each other. And to cut a long story short, he suggested to Legros-Clark that it was a forgery, and the three of them devised uh, some really impressive tests, uh, a really good example of science method to show that this was untrue. I'm not going to go through all the details. They discovered that all the bones had been stained with uh, ferrous ammonium sulfate and then oxidised in potassium dichromate to give it uh, a rusty look to match the gravels. They looked at the fluorine content, which is soaked into bones and teeth from groundwater, and discovered that, as you'd expect, the older vault bones had more fluorine in them, but the teeth and mandible were quite young, so they couldn't belong to the same individual. And when they drilled to take sample from the, drill, the teeth and jaw, it smelled a burning bone. If you've been to the dentist and had a feeling you know what that smells like, like kind of burning marmite, well, they were then totally aware that this had collagen in and it was a young, uh, unfossilised specimen. So... The paleolists, the tools, uh, were were real paleolists, but probably from the field behind. The eoliths all turned out not to be true tools at all, and um, 
and so the thing was clinched. Um, there are at least 38 of these jokes, forgeries, hoaxes that we can put at the door of Charles Dawson. Um, these are three that I talked to you about. There are many more. He seems to have um, put himself in the position where he was very needy of people's opinions, uh, uh, favourable opinions, and he, he wished to ingratiate himself with the experts in all these fields. And um, the finger's been pointed at him ever since, although we don't know if there were other people involved. So very briefly to finish, here is the Piltdown Molar. It's got some enamel missing, and we were curious about this. This is from a joint project led by Chris Stringer at the Natural History Museum. And we made some CT scans with Isabel de Groot, some modern x-rays of the jaw. And this molar tooth has a root snapped off. I think the forger tried to take the teeth out to file them flat on, on a carborundum paper, snapped the roots in so doing. The periodontal ligament, the socket which holds the tooth in, should be dark and empty, but it's filled with a filling material and the tooth hasn't been pressed down properly as if it's set too quickly. In fact, if you slice the jaw uh, in this way transversely, you can see it's a real mess inside. The bone round the teeth is chewed away and broken off. There's all this glue all over the place, but as you go further down, you see glue in the periodontal space where the, it seems to have set before the teeth were put in properly, and there's a crack which runs all the way through the jaw, which I can only think would be produced by getting hold of the jaw joints wishboning it apart to snap it at the chin. It would then break the bone all the way through the sockets. And then, if we look at the gravel, it's this very characteristic appearance in, in, in X-ray images, very white, dense, uh, ferruginous particles mixed with other uh, bits of gravel. And it looks like this. We looked at the bones, and we found in the external auditory meatus, the ear hole, and all the other apertures in the bone, a piece of gravel had been stuffed in. It's like there's a fingerprint, the way the fraudster, the forger works. And on CT, you see there's a piece of gravel stuffed <coughs> into the bone here. Everything inside is full of bits of uh, presumably piltdown gravel, another bit uh, stuffed in here, another bit here. In fact, every single piece of tooth and bone from Piltdown 2, which never left Dawson's house. It's stuffed with uh, little fragments of gravel. The canine was stuffed with um, larger fragments. A bit of a mistake here, because there should have been some smaller ones put in to make it look more natural. Uh, this was an error to pick things of more or less the same size. But they're there in the vault bones, and they're there in the other teeth. So there's a sort of signature stuff and plug in every uh, specimen from Piltdown. And again, in the canine, you see the scratches from where and what looks like a very bright filling material. Could be gutta perca, could be an iron um, oxide nodule, who knows. And then on the side of the tooth, it's not tooth enamel at all. The scans show it's been restored, and it looks to me, looks to us, as if this is a, uh, a, silica, a white silica filling material of the kind that came into use about 1908. So whoever the forger was may have had some dental knowledge. And again, the base of the tooth showing bits of gravel pushed into it. So to summarise, this clutch of bones, this unlikely match of bones, uh, swayed most people into thinking big brains were very ancient and that other fossil forms were really perhaps not on the human ancestral line. Piltdown had a very powerful effect on uh, thinking about human evolution. And this picture called The Discussion uh, by John Cook shows all these scientists. Keith, of course, uh, is supposed to be here at the Royal College. Everyone is clustered around Keith, who's demonstrating how he thinks it should be. And all the people we talked about are looking on and making comments with, of course, uh, a great um, collection of comparative examples, and Charles Darwin behind on the wall, just behind Charles Dawson, who's looking proudly on. 
So the really sad thing is Arthur Keith lived to, uh, to, to learn both that Galley Hill wasn't ancient, it was three and a half thousand years old, it wasn't even very well fossilised. That was really sad. He lived to hear about Piltdown being a forgery and he was very upset by it. So uh, Brash and Cave in his obituary wrote, Keith characteristically championed his newer Piltdown reconstructions as vigorously as ever, right to the end. To the time of the exposure of the whole fraud, he never finally resolved his doubts about the Piltdown mosaic of Neanthropic and simian features, this mix of human and ape features. And when the fraud was exposed, it took him some time to adjust himself to a distressing situation, the tragedy of which, to him, he said, was the loss of faith in the testimony of our fellow workers. So I've left you not very much time for questions. I understand if you have to rush to get a bus or back to work, um, please do that. Um, if there's Anything pressing that springs to mind, um, we, can, we can try between. There's a lot of experts here. We can try and answer your questions. Thank you, Sam. Well, thank you very much indeed. That was fascinating. I mean, I'm sure you'll agree this is the ultimate cold case. Uh, we'd be tempted to call this CSI Hunterian if it wasn't a fact that my colleagues might run with that and it would up in our family programme. Okay, yes. um, but we do, I mean, given how fascinating it is, um, do slip away if you need to, but I'm sure there's time for a couple of questions. It's an unprecedented opportunity to uh, quiz Professor Dean in this cutting-edge research. Please. The question is uh, whether there is any certainty about who the villain was. Uh, I, I, th I think why it was done remains a puzzle, um, because that begs who did it. And while we can all point fingers, there's no signed confession. And what evidence there is points to the person who was there every time something was found. And remember, nothing was found after Charles Dawson's death. Um, whether other people were involved with him or not re remains um, unknown. My personal opinion is that when more than one person's involved, it leaks out very quickly after one or the other's death. I don't see any reason to involve anybody else, although quite possibly people were trying to find out how he did it so that they could more reliably uh, make an accusation. And so if you're caught trying to mimic the staining, you either get labelled as the fraudster um, when you might actually have been trying to out the fraudster. So the answer to your question is um, it wouldn't stand up in court but I, I would uh, point to an amateur who didn't know how to carefully take teeth out, who made a mess of anatomical specimens and to whom I think we attribute we project cleverness onto them by seeing things uh, which aren't so clever. I think if we just stood back and said how silly some of the things are, uh, we'd be nearer the truth. And that would suggest it wasn't an anatomist, it wasn't a technician, it wasn't a dentist, it was someone who was having a go. But um, that's my opinion. Well, there are hoaxes, and, and you, you know there there are fibbers in in science. Um, this wasn't, I, you know, this I don't think was done by a scientist. But I think people, as a result of Piltdown, have been very, very careful in our field of human evolution, and I think people are alert to this kind of thing being possible. I think in this day and age. Nobody would ever dream that that w w was something anyone w would think of doing. Um, so uh, all I would say is that people are scrutinous to, a, to an incredible degree these days and would seize upon anything that they felt was out of place. And you're right, there are more techniques in use and there is more evidence to stack up. And when it doesn't fit, people are more critical about why. 
One final question, perhaps. No, you flumps them. Yep. Well, thank you very much. Okay, if you'd like to learn more, ladies and gentlemen, we have some original manuscripts um, at the back of the library there, and I'd like to thank my archival colleagues for laying them out. I'd also like to thank our speech-to-text team for making this um, as accessible as possible.